got up early to read Amos this morning. <laughs> I, I started at Friday or something. Well, so did I, but that's a long time ago, Kathleen. Yes. How many have you, of you have read Amos at some time? Yes. Good, good number. Super. <clears throat> like Kathleen, I studied it back at A-level, but that's an awfully long time ago. Um, but there's lots of wonderful things in Amos, and we're just going to pick out a few of them today. So last week, Liz focused our thoughts on love and justice. And these two concepts might also be used to describe many of the messages of what we call the minor prophets, some of whom emphasise one aspect more than another. And in the case of Amos, his overarching theme relates to justice. And unfortunately, it's the lack of justice and loving kindness, he said, is the Hebrew word, that will lead the people to judgment. Now, I think Amos is an interesting character, and we know perhaps a little more about him than we do about some of the other prophets. His name means burden bearer. And he certainly lived up to that as he had a divinely given burden of declaring judgment to a rebellious Israel. Not an easy task. And he introduced himself at the opening of his book as a shepherd from the southern kingdom of Judah. And later on we also learn that he is a dresser of sycamore figs. They're not the same as our sycamore, they're a bit like a mulberry and their fruit would be eaten by the poor. And so it seems likely that Amos was not probably a wealthy man. He seems to be, have been forced to take two lowly jobs. And that no doubt resonates with many people today who are in a two-job situation. And unlike Isaiah, who was a priest and a near contemporary, Amos didn't, as far as we know, have any particular training. He hadn't been to Bible college in Jerusalem or got any religious qualifications. Now, it's easy when we look at the Old Testament to assume that it's just a linear progression, each book following on from the previous one. And, of course, this is true to a degree in some cases, but actually there's a lot of overlap. So the ministry of Amos fits in with parts of two kings and two chronicles. King Uzziah was on the throne of Judah, the southern kingdom. He died in 739 BC. And you'll remember, won't you, that that was the year that Isaiah had his famous encounter in the temple. Meanwhile, in the northern kingdom of Israel, Jeroboam II was king, and he was a very bad king too. So this places Amos around the mid-century, mid-8th century, perhaps some 760 years before Jesus was born. So that's where he stands in history. Now, many famous people are remembered by their words. This is true of some of our prime ministers who have been associated with a particular phrase. And I'm sure you can think of lots of examples. But in the 1930s, Neville Chamberlain was prime minister and, of course, Hitler was coming to power at that time. And Neville Chamberlain went to visit Hitler and he returned waving that famous piece of paper and declaring, peace in our time. And after the turmoil of the previous years, I'm sure many people heaved a sigh of relief, hoping to sit back and enjoy life. 
But of course, we all know what happened next. And the situation in the divided kingdoms of Israel and Judah was somewhat similar. For them too, at that period, it was apparently peace in our time. After many years of war with all the nations round about them, now they were enjoying a time of peace, prosperity and ease. And so it's into this situation that Amos comes with his messages from God. Now, he may not have been a professional preacher, but he certainly knew something about human nature. And his first six messages concern the sins of the Gentile nations around Israel. And you can imagine the reaction of the people as he denounces one enemy state after another. And of course, we might react in the same way to somebody pointing out the sins of China, North Korea, Russia, to name but a few. And then he moves a little closer to home and speaks about Israel's cousins, Edom and Moab, who descended from Esau and Lot. And maybe we might think of Canada or Australia in our analogy. Next, he starts pointing the finger at Israel's sister nation, Judah, where he came from. Well, you can still imagine his hearers in the north nodding and amening much as we might when the iniquities of Scotland, Ireland or Wales are highlighted. So far, his audience is with him. But then, in chapter 2, we read, For three transgressions of Israel and for four, I will not revoke the punishment, because they sell the righteous for silver and the needy for the pair of sandals. Very carefully then, Amos has caught the people's attention before finally focusing on the heart of his message to the northern kingdom of Israel. Judgment is coming on them, as well as to all the other nations, and it's for repeated flagrant cruelty and injustice, for three transgressions and for four. That's his repeated theme in those opening chapters. These aren't isolated incidents, one-offs, They're repeated on and on and on, and so judgment is coming. And so the rest of his sermons deal with Israel and her situation before God. And Amos certainly doesn't mince his words. At one point, you'll find that he calls the wives of the nobility cows. You know, that's not exactly the best way to win friends and influence people. (laughs) But you'll be glad to know it's not quite all doom and gloom, but it was strong stuff and it must have taken a lot of courage to stand up there and say this to the people. Now, before we dismiss this as irrelevant on the grounds perhaps that it was written over 2,000 years ago to different people in different circumstances, we do well to remember that Amos was addressing the official church of his day the people of God. Chapter 3 opens with these words. Hear this word, people of Israel, the word the Lord has spoken against you, against the whole family I brought up out of Egypt. You only have I chosen of all the families of the earth. Therefore, I'll do you lots of blessings. No, therefore I will punish you for your sins. 
So this is the chosen families of the earth. These messages were delivered to God's chosen people. Elsewhere, they're described as the apple of his eye. They were precious to him. But we find there's no nepotism in God's dealings with his people, whether they be Jew or Christian. He is a holy God. And whilst he loves us, and because he loves us, there is justice and discipline. As the writer to the Hebrew says, for the Lord disciplines those he loves and he punishes each one he accepts as his child. I'm sure Steve can relate to that with young Lottie. You don't want to tell her off, but it has to happen sometimes. So what might Amos say to Christians today and to this church in particular if he came amongst us? Thank you. <laughs> Here are the few of the things that Amos then highlights, or perhaps that should be lowlights, and perhaps some of them will have a familiar ring for us today. So in chapter 2, he goes on to say, you have caused the Nazarites to sin by making them drink wine, and you commanded the prophets, shut up. In other words, those who tried to speak up for God were being gagged. And we can see this happening today, can't we? When those who speak out against sin in the world are ridiculed or threatened or in some places imprisoned or put to death. None of us wants to have our faults pointed out to us, do we? But as a believers, we have a responsibility to point people to God and to the way he would have us live. Those two go hand in hand. We can't just say, come to Jesus, he loves you without saying why we need to do that and living in God's way. And if you remember that the Queen's funeral, the Archbishop of Canterbury was, I thought, very courageous when he spoke of the responsibilities and duties of leadership in front of those world leaders who were there in the congregation, some of whom from places that we would not have a very high opinion of. But he was categorical in what he said about that area and I wonder if a few were pricked as they listened to those words further on then we read that Amos says I will destroy the beautiful homes of the wealthy their winter mansions and their summer houses too all their palaces filled with ivory says the Lord listen to me you fat cows living in Samaria you women who oppress the poor and crush the needy and who are always calling to your husbands, bring us another drink. He doesn't mince his words, does he? The luxurious lifestyles of the wealthy are under attack here. Does this resonate with us today? So we see the rich indulging themselves in fabulous lifestyles while others can hardly make ends meet. What about our wealthy footballers who get paid more in a week than most people earn in a year? I saw something on social media about a, a, Senegal, a Senegalese footballer who was chaffed for having a cracked iPhone. And he said he would rather spend the millions that he made on helping his community back in Africa than having all the, the go-to equipment. That's the attitude, but it's not the attitude of most, is it? 
And so in chapter 8, Amos has this complaint about the attitudes and actions of people. Listen to this, you who rob the poor and trample down the needy. You can't wait for the Sabbath day to be over and the religious festivals to end so that you can get back to cheating the helpless. You measure out grain with dishonest measures and cheat the buyer with dishonest scales. And you mix the grain you sell with the chaff off the floor. Then you enslave poor people for one piece of silver or a pair of sandals. So there's two aspects here. The people were so keen on money-making that they couldn't wait for sunset on Saturday so they could open their shops again. Today, of course, we have Sunday trading and many stores are open 24-7. And perhaps sometimes we just need to consider what we do on the day that we set aside for worship. In our increasing secular society, are we still able to keep one day different? And should we even try? Where do we stand on shopping on Sunday, buying fuel, playing sports, or whatever it may be? For each of us, the decision may be different, but we do need to be clear in our own mind what we do or don't do and whether it is pleasing to God. And we also need to bear in mind how our example may affect others. As Paul reminded the Corinthian church, but you must be careful so that your freedom does not cause others to stumble, with a weaker conscience to stumble. So we have to think about these aspects. And then that second part of the passage that we just read from Amos 8 deals with how the poor were being treated. Dishonest measures were being used. The grain was being mixed with the dust off the floor. And people were being enslaved and made destitute for the slightest cause. It all sounds rather like Charles Dickens' books on the Victorian workhouse, doesn't it? But is it really any different today when people are working long hours in dreadful conditions so that we can save a pound or two on a T-shirt or a pair of jeans? Amos clearly shows God's attitude to those who trample on the poor. And it is good to see the positive things people in this fellowship are doing to help those in need. We heard about some of them yesterday, didn't we? And it was wonderful to hear the different things that are going on. And so we have CAP, Christians Against Poverty, as a good example. Welcome churches, our gifts to the food bank that we brought at harvest and at other times, and so much more that I'm sure you can think of. But we mustn't allow ourselves to become complacent. Through Amos, God repeatedly told his people, seek me and live. Seek good and not evil, that you may live. That was the recurring theme. And it's not enough to avoid doing the harmful things. We must take positive action to build one another up. That we, and that should be extended not just within our fellowship, but to those in need in whatever situation we find them. In other words, it's sheer hypocrisy to seek God unless we are going to seek good at the same time. God is good. And if I'm going to seek him, then I must seek good. 
He is a God of goodness, justice and righteousness. And then later in his message, Amos talks about the day of the Lord. And then as now, there was a tendency to think that this would apply to other people, as God will judge them and not us. And of course, even today, Jewish people are looking for the coming of Messiah. And in Manchester, I once saw a banner saying, bring Mashiach now. And Mashiach, of course, is the Hebrew for Messiah. And Jewish people think that it's their good works that will speed Messiah's coming. And that it will be wonderful when he comes. And so it was when Amos preached. The people thought that the day of the Lord would bring them out of trouble. But in fact, it would bring them into worse difficulties. They thought that if God came in answer to their prayer, he would deal with all the wicked people around them. He didn't. He was going to deal with them as well. Is not the day of the Lord darkness and not light, gloom with no brightness in it? I hate and despise your feasts. I take no delight in your solemn assemblies. Even though you offer me your burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. And the peace offerings of your fattened animals, I will not look on them. Take away from me the noise of your songs. To the melody of your harps, I will not listen. But let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. The people of Israel thought they were delighting God. They offered feasts, assemblies, offerings, and they played beautiful music. But God said their music was just noise. God not, does not judge our music by strict musical standards. He judges by other things. Therefore, what to us may be a sweet and beautiful sound might be an utter noise to him. Our offerings and plays of thanksgiving might be beautifully worded. And people may say, what a beautiful service. How peaceful and worshipful. The real test of worship is, did God enjoy it? Did he delight in it? Did he love it? Amos says, let justice, those famous words, let justice roll down like streams. Let righteousness flow like a river. In other words, it's the life outside our worship that decides whether God will enjoy our worship. And I'm not having a go at our musicians who do a great job. There's more to worship than just the songs we sing on a Sunday. But if I'm a landlord extorting from the poor from Monday to Saturday, however beautiful my worship on Sunday, God hates it. If I'm being unfair and unjust to people, if I'm saying nasty things about them that are not true, or nasty things about them at all, if I'm being a horrid person to live with at home during the week, God does not like my worship. It is self-delusion that he is enjoying it. Let justice fill your life. Let righteousness fill your life. Let standards of morality, let uprightness and integrity, honesty and purity flow down like rivers through your life. Israel had been blessed in so many ways. 
but now they're living with that false sense of security, that peace in our time. Material prosperity and military protection had lulled the nations into believing it was immune to destruction. And I think we can say that until recently, at least, the UK was in a similar position. And even now, by the standard of many countries, we're exceedingly wealthy and we don't suffer for much. And sadly, people have forgotten, or worse, are overtly rejecting God. And so we need believers, don't we, who exhibit a godly character and commitment to the Lord and want to serve him. So what was wrong with Israel? They were prosperous, they had peace, they had religion, but they had never met God. And Amos now finishes up, get ready to meet God. He had told them that the Assyrians are going to invade their land. But he doesn't say, get ready to meet the Assyrians. He didn't say, prepare to meet the enemy. He didn't say, prepare to meet Tiglath-Pileser, their emperor. He said, get ready to meet God. In other words, there's hope. There is hope. If you will only get ready to meet God now, there is still something that can be done. Unfortunately, only 40 or so years later, in 722 BC, Israel was destroyed by the Assyrians. God's words and warnings to them had gone unheeded. If only they had listened, if only they had heard, because God is a God of mercy. He doesn't like doing these things to a nation. Why did he send Amos? To plead with them to come back before it was too late. And no nation can afford to play about with God. You cannot defy God and get away with it. A nation that does not come up to God's standards, God's plumb line, will sooner or later fall. So most of Amos' message is strong stuff. But it is certainly worth reading. It's full of wonderful language from this shepherd-turned-prophet. But in the final chapter, there's a ray of hope. He gave us a hint about it back in chapter 3, although he used a rather gory analogy from his days as a herdsman. He said, A shepherd who tries to rescue a sheep from a lion's mouth will recover only two legs or a piece of an ear. <clears throat> Doesn't sound very nice, but <clears throat> as the shepherd produced a leg or an ear of a lamb, it proved he had tried to fight off the wild beasts. And so Amos was using this picture to show that something, somebody, some would be saved from his prophecy. Some people from those ten northern tribes of Israel did heed him. They fled south into Judah before destruction came on the northern kingdom. So there is a future for the people of Israel, the Jews. There is a future for the people of God and for all who will turn to him. Seek good, seek God. And so in chapter 9, at the end of the book, God says three wonderful things. You could have a whole sermon on these three sentences. He says in chapter 9, verses 11 to 15, I will raise up, I will restore, I will plant. I will raise up, I will restore, I will plant. The three promises concern the three aspects of Israel's life, their national life, their agricultural life, 
and their tether toward the old future. We have seen some of it come to pass in our lifetime. Israel is back in her land. That's unique among nations. No other nation has been taken into exile and then returned back to their land as a nation. The land of Israel is flourishing agriculturally as the desert is made to bloom. But Amos, of course, had yet to see the first part of God's promise, I will raise up, come to pass, that promise of restoration. The birth of a saviour for Israel and for the rest of the world was many years distant. But we can rejoice that that came to pass just as the prophets foretold. And we know what a wonderful saviour Jesus is. The final, of course, fulfilment of Amos' words is still for us, even in the future. But we can look forward, can't we, to that day when David's greater son, Yeshua HaMashiach, that's the Jesus the Messiah, will return, the shofar will blow, the ram's horn will blow, and God will summon all the nations who are called by my name to himself. Hallelujah. We have a wonderful future. We can look forward to it so long as we are seeking God and seeking good. Thank you, Andy. Thank you.